Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you um, for our brother Charles. We thank you for um, your word that he's going to speak to us. And we pray that you'd fill him with your spirit and that he would know uh, your favor and your delight. And now we all place a hand on our hearts. And we pray that you'd open up our hearts and our minds to hear from you through your servant Charles this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's working. Oh, yes, it's working. Good. Um, yes, as, as Wayne said, we're continuing uh, our series about home and what home looks like. Uh, and we've used the background of the people of Judah uh, when they'd been taken into exile in Babylon. And James Stevenson's already done uh, much of the historic detail, so I'm just going to give you a very short reminder. After the death of King Solomon, the people of Israel split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, known as Israel, had its capital in Samaria, and it was overthrown by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC, and its people were taken into exile. The southern kingdom, known as Judah, had its capital in Jerusalem. Uh, it outlived the overthrow of the northern kingdom by just over 130 years. But Judah itself was also overthrown, this time by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, in 586 BC. In fact, the overthrow of Judah was a two-stage process, uh, 11 years apart. So stage one was in 597 BC. The Babylonians came to Jerusalem, and Judah, Jerusalem surrendered to them. The Babylonians took the king of Judah as a prisoner to Babylon and replaced him with a vassal, uh, the then king's uncle, who was called Zedekiah. And at the same time, the Babylonians uh, deported a lot of the nobles and people of ability and skill uh, to Babylon, and they also took a lot of the uh, gold and silver articles from the temple. Um, Nine years later, Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon, and so Nebuchadnezzar came back and besieged Jerusalem in a lengthy siege that lasted over two years, and Jerusalem then fell. And the Babylonians were, were entirely ruthless. They broke down the city wall of Jerusalem. They utterly destroyed most of the buildings, including the temple and the royal palace, and most of the inhabitants, those who hadn't already died of famine or disease during the siege, were slaughtered, and only a small remnant was taken to Babylon to join those who'd already been deported uh, 11 years earlier. Throughout this time, God was not silent. He was constantly talking to his people. Through the prophet Ezekiel, who had been deported and therefore was already in Babylon with the exiles in Babylon, and with the prophet Jeremiah, who was actually in Judah and in Jerusalem and lived in Jerusalem throughout the siege. Now, in the Bible, there's a book that we know as Lamentations. Who wrote it is not entirely clear, but tradition has it that it was written by the prophet Jeremiah very soon after he had witnessed the utter destruction of Jerusalem. And I'm just going to ask Jane and my wife to come and read us a selection of verses 
from Lamentations chapter 3. So this is probably Jeremiah reflecting on the destroyed uh, Jerusalem. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. <clears throat> he has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone to crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny people their rights before the Most High, to deprive them of justice. Would not the Lord see such things? I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you, and you said, do not fear. You, Lord, took up my case. You redeemed my life. Lord, you have seen the wrong done to me. Uphold my cause. You have seen the depth of their vengeance, all their plots against me. Lord, you have heard their insults, all their plots against me what my enemies whisper and mutter against me all day long. Look at them, sitting or standing, they mock me in their songs. Pay them back what they deserve, Lord, for what their hands have done. Put a veil over their hearts, and may your curse be on them. Pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. Uh, thank you. We, have, uh, we humans will never fully understand all the aspects of God's character. And as a result, I think we tend 
to emphasize the aspect or aspects of God character that we personally find most appealing. So many of us in the West at the present, um, the aspect of God's character that we often refer to is that God is love. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It is clearly biblical. Uh, John writes, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. The problem is that if we concentrate on love to the exclusion of all other attributes of God, we distort the picture. God becomes a sort of ineffectual, pleasant old man with a beatific smile on his face who just loves everyone. On the other hand, I understand that if we were to live in one of those parts of the world, and I fear they're growing in size, where Christians are persecuted simply for being Christians, a different aspect of God's character might be rather more important to us. If our menfolk are being murdered, our houses burnt down, our women raped, and our children taken as child soldiers or as sex slaves, simply because we are Christians, I suspect we might be more interested in God being a God of justice rather than God being a God of love. I suspect that we might be regularly reminding God in prayer of that bit in Romans chapter 12. Do not... Indeed, we see something similar at the end of that passage in Lamentations that Jane just read for us. Pay them back what they deserve, O Lord, for what their hands have done. Pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. You see, as I said, when you read the whole of the Bible, the idea that God is just a God of love becomes clear that that's something of a distortion because we see God doing things which are clearly right and clearly just, but really cannot be characterized as just loving. So in the account of Noah at the beginning of the Bible, we're told that the earth had become corrupt and full of violence. And so God came to Noah and said to him, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And that is what he did. God sent a flood and wiped out all living things, except those few who survived in the ark. We've been looking at the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Why did that happen? Well, it happened because the people of Judah had rejected God and had turned to worshipping idols. God had called the Jewish people to be a witness to him in the world. And instead of being a lighthouse and a beacon to draw people to God, they had simply become like all the people living around them. Indeed, in many ways, they were worse than the people around them. They included sacrificing babies in the fire. And so God made it clear that he had arranged for the Babylonians to come and clean out Jerusalem. It's recorded that God said, 
I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes out a dish, wipe their foes, because they have done evil in my eyes and provoked me to anger. Now, sometimes when I talk about God as being a God of justice, people say, oh, yeah, that's all right. That, that's the God of the Old Testament. But the God of the New Testament is different. After all, Jesus came into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry on a donkey to illustrate that he was a person of peace. You can't fight from a donkey. He came to bring peace, to open an era of peace and love. Now, I would love to agree with that, but as I read the Bible, I don't see that as a sustainable position. Right at the end of the Bible is the book of Revelation, which is the revelation to the Apostle John of what was to come. And almost at the end of that, in chapter 19, John sees a vision of Jesus, not riding a donkey this time, but riding a white horse. And this is what John records. He says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, Jesus riding the horse. With justice, he judges and makes war. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The God of the Bible is the same in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. He is a God of love. He is a God of compassion. He is a God of mercy. But we must never forget that he is also a God of justice and of righteousness. Indeed, the overwhelming justice of God is one of the main themes of the whole Bible. For example, the prophet Isaiah tells us, but the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. If you move into the New Testament, uh, in Luke 18, uh, Jesus gives the parable of the persistent widow going to the unjust judge, and he ends it with these words, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen one, who cho who chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And then if you go right to the end to the Revelation, there are a number of occasions on which the heavenly host cry out, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Indeed, one of the reasons why Jesus criticized the Pharisees was for their lack of justice. In Matthew's account, it records Jesus saying to them, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The destruction of Jerusalem in 586 was barbaric and horrendous, but it only came about because the Jewish people of that time would not turn back to God. Time and again, God warned them, but they seemed incapable of recognizing that they were sinning, that their behavior was deeply offensive to God, 
And the destruction of Jerusalem was the just result brought about by their actions. As God explained at the time through the prophet Jeremiah, who was there in Jerusalem for them to hear, my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. They have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And at the same time as God was speaking in Jerusalem, he was also speaking to the exiles uh, in Babylon through Ezekiel, where he said, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Nevertheless, I think we need to understand how absolutely shattering to the Jews the destruction in Jerusalem in general and the temple in particular must have been. Jerusalem was the home of the Jewish people, and the temple was the place where Almighty God had chosen to dwell on earth. When Solomon had built the temple 350 years earlier, God had appeared to him and said that his, God's eyes and heart, would always be in the temple. And at the first dedication of the temple, there's a little vignette which I find fascinating. God filled the temple with his glory, which was so tangible that the priests couldn't actually carry out their functions because the presence of God was filling the temple. So we can understand why uh, the writer of Lamentations wrote, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord because all that they understood had gone and been destroyed. How could the temple, the base of God on earth, be removed? Actually, pausing there, there's also a fascinating little um, uh, account in Ezekiel because he actually saw in a vision God's glory leave the temple. It moved up over the east gate and then moved out. And once God's glory had gone, it was just a big stone building. It had no special status. Now, I can see you sitting there thinking, oh, that's all very interesting. I thank you for the history lesson. What on earth is the relevance of that to us here uh, today? Well, the first thing to remember is God is the same. He desires that everybody should turn to him. He desires that none should be lost and none should perish. And today it is us, the church, that should be the witness of God to the world. We are the lighthouse. We are the beacon that proclaims God's goodness to the world. But rather like the Jews at the time of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, I fear that large sections of the church today, certainly in the West, have done what Jeremiah criticized the Jews for doing. We've exchanged the glory of God for worthless idols. We've stopped going to Jesus in prayer and in fasting, seeking living water that only he can give, which we can then share with others. And instead, we've dug our own broken cisterns, so we have absolutely nothing to offer to the world. And in places I fear we have so concentrated on God's love 
that we have neglected his justice. If I'm honest, I'm haunted by some other words the prophet Jeremiah wrote at this time. He complained that the religious leaders of his day had done this. He said, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say. When, of course, in reality, they were on the very verge of being slaughtered. And I fear that we in the church today, in a desire to try to be more acceptable to those outside, have allowed the things of God to be moved to the sidelines. And for us really to say, peace, peace, when in fact we should be crying out, oh Lord, help us. I just wonder, when did you last hear a world leader assign things to God, say, to be honest, climate change is beyond us, so I'm looking to God to give us a strategy and a direction. When in this country did we last have a major leader attribute to God the ability to control? I, I was racking my brains. I, I, I came up with Winston Churchill on VE Day in 1945 when he moved that um, Parliament should go over to St. Mary's Church, Westminster, to thank uh, God for deliverance from German domination, but I'm sure somebody's going to come and say there's been one since then. But it is unlikely. Politicians are called, oh, we don't do God. But they should do God, because God does them. And the reality remains that God is in control, whether leaders acknowledge him or not. If you want tangible proof of that, in the last 2,000 years, there have been many empires that have come and gone. But the church of Jesus Christ remains, even though some of those empires have tried to destroy it. If you listen to Christian prophets today, the theme that is coming through consistently is that this is a stormy season in which God is shaking the nations. As a God of justice, righteousness, and truth, he is tirelessly working to remind people of all levels, of the truth that he is God, and he is ultimately the person in control of things. And so he is shaking the nations to undermine people's confidence in human achievements and human institutions. Just as God said to Ezekiel, he didn't desire the eternal death of anyone. So God continues to call out to people today, and the point of his shaking of the institutions and the politics of our nation is to reap a harvest of souls. That people would give up relying on the things they currently rely on, realize they don't work, and come kneeling before Jesus and saying, what must I do to be saved? So I'm afraid I think we can expect more economic problems, more political unrest, probably more regional wars and conflicts. And for some time to come, the suggestion of time scale of seven years, when we'll see whether that's right or not. But as the shaking continues, we can expect that the church will grow. And we in the church should be expectant of that and ready for that. So what does that mean for us here in members of BNA Church in November 2022 in Bristol. 
As I was preparing this talk, I was going to say something slightly different, but it dawned on me that actually the way to reduce the impact of this shaking on us is increasingly to learn how to make our true home in Jesus Christ. So Jesus becomes genuinely our security. If you're like me, you probably get much of your security from your home, your skills and abilities, my age, the size of your pension pot or whatever. But all of these things can be stripped away. All of them can be lost. However, if our true home and our ultimate security is really in Jesus, that can never be taken away. As the psalmist put it, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, of course, it's all very well to be able to set that out and say, put your trust in Jesus, then you'll be all right. The much more difficult question is, how? How do you do it? Well, you may know the story of the wise owl and the centipede. The centipede had very sore feet. And so it went to the wise owl and it said, wise owl, I've got really sore feet. What do I do? And the wise owl thought for a minute and said, you walk one inch above the ground for a week. And the centipede went away very happy. And then it came back about 10 minutes later and said, wise owl, how do I walk one inch above the ground for a week? And the wise owl said, I advise on matters of policy, not points of detail. <laughs> so getting to the points of detail of how in detail do we put our trust in Jesus, I suspect that is for you individually, but I'm going to make a few suggestions. Our starting point might be what the writer to Lamentation said today. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. For me, as I realize the goodness and kindness of God, that often brings me to repentance. Seeking for forgiveness for failing to put Jesus first. For using him as a sort of bolt-on. I run my life, and thank you, Jesus, come along with me. Instead of Jesus, I put my life in your hands. And I've said before, in his teaching, Jesus sort of, in passing, basically said, when you pray when you fast, when you give. And it seemed to me that Jesus obviously thought of these three things, praying, fasting, and giving, as an essential part of discipleship. In prayer, we build a relationship with him. In fasting, we are saying in a very real way, I do not live on bread alone. And by giving, we're breaking the grip of money over our lives. So it seems to me that if we want to develop and deepen our relationship with Jesus and build our lives on him, starting with concentrating on those three things might be a very good starting point. 
And I'm going to give the last word to Simon Breaker. Simon Breaker is a church leader who has a gift of prophecy. And now you always ought to assess a prophet. And the answer is, my wife Jane has known him for 15 years, so he must be kosher. Last week or the week before, he recorded this. The Lord says, he was saying that people are always wanting things. What are we to do, Lord? What do you do? And he, he came up with this. The Lord says, be a Christian and live like Christ. Be consistent and rooted in good practice, regardless of what is happening in the world. Stop seeking a quick fix. Instead, engage with the process of consistently walking with Jesus.